The Evolve Network is now live at evolvenetwork.tv. Subscribe for meal plans, recipes, cooking shows, and our very own The Magic Pill and The Magic Plant, as well as access to my favorite documentaries. The Evolve Network is also home to our full library of podcasts, with new release podcasts airing first and in full on the channel. You can also watch selected vodcasts in a video format. Enjoy this highlight of our podcast and head over to evolvenetwork.tv for the full Evolve podcast experience. The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co. established 1977 have personal and domestic water filters which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting alkaline ionized mineral water which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Henna Maria is an activist, speaker, writer, practitioner of sacred healing arts, natural law, and the Essene way. To find out more about Henna Maria, please visit her website, dawnofpeace.org. That's D-A-W-N-O-F-P-E-A-C-E.org. Henna, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you, sister? I'm doing good. Believe it or not, <laughs> world is kind of going crazy, but you know, I'm still having my sources of joy. Tell me about that. Tell me about the word joy and why is that so important at, I mean, I don't mean at this particular point in time in, in history, but what can we do to cultivate that? And why is it so important at, right now to experience joy? Yeah, well, um, I look at the way the indigenous people have been doing resistance for millennia. Their secret, I would say, is to have gratitude for life, no matter what, you know? It's like they've been oppressed for thousands of years. Um, they never stopped singing. They never stopped dancing, you know? It's like, no matter the circumstances, there's always something that we can find that gives us that spark, spark of life, that, that spark of, of gratitude. And that's, for me, an absolute key because, especially as activists, where do we fuel our actions from if we don't have a well of light within us, you know? So I feel like whatever we draw from that place 
of gratitude for the things that we do have in our lives that are good, then that fuel can really manifest into a lot of beauty, a lot of harmony in our work. But if we allow that light to be dimmed because of what's happening around us, then we fall in our resonance and we're no longer able to help people. We also begin to suffer and then we're all in that same lower frequency. So I really see that the indigenous path of singing, you know, even the way the Native Americans have held it together all throughout, holding their sacred ceremonies, you know, having reverence for nature, even though everything's changed around their culture, they're still holding that light. I think that's the way for us as well right now. Very true words. You mentioned the word activist and some of the activists that I see out there seem to be shouting and yelling and I can't help but feel that the, their intent is pure, but the vibration that they may be sharing with others may not be of the highest frequency. And that's just an observation of mine based on some of the outspoken activists that I've heard. It's nearly like they're shouting instead of communicating. And I'd love for you to explain what an activist is and what's the best way. Is there a best communication method to be an activist? Yeah, I think that's a journey. I honestly think that's a journey. Like it's so easy to see what is wrong and then be triggered by that and just want it to end. It's easy to become this kind of barking dog that is just saying, just stop it, you know? And what we don't realize is that when we go into that mode, people's defense mechanisms come up. Even if what we're saying is valid, even if you know, what we're pointing out is true, if we're talking about cruelty, for example, or, or you know, all sorts of exploitation, whether animal or human, it's easy to feel a sense of rage when we're witnessing that violence. You know? I think that the real art is to inspire people. Because if you go at them and you start saying, you know, you're this, you're that, you're wrong, they don't want to hear it. They're just going to put a wall in front of them. They're maybe going to even attack you back or, or they're going to ridicule you. It's like all of us would actually react the same way if somebody started to go at us like that. I feel the way really is to bring out the best of people and ask questions, you know, the Socratean way. Ask questions that are meant to inspire your self-realization. That's what I've learned in, in my journey of activism is dialogue rather than angry, negative messages and, and shouting and fighting. Dialogue, inspiration, empowerment. Mm, empowerment. And I love that, the invitation. That came to me in a sacred ceremony last year when I was in Costa Rica and uh, sitting with grand grandmother Ayahuasca. I asked many questions in that experience and one of them was, how best to lead the way if I am such a thing as a leader, even though I don't like to wear that hat, but for some reason I've ended up in that position for whatever known reason it is. And, and what became very clear to me was instead of telling people what to do, invite them into the conversation or invite them to participate so they are heard and their views are heard instead of, the old way of being a teacher and teaching people or telling people what to do. And I'd love for you to extrapolate on that and, and what the word invitation means and how do you do this? Yeah. Well, I can give you an example. When we do our street activism, 
for the animal rights, for example, the best way I would say is to invite the person to look at the phenomena from a safe distance. So I would, for example, approach the person and say, hey, do you know our group? Do you know what we're doing? So first of all, I'm making a contact, you know, just a human contact, you know, make them feel like they're welcome in the space. Yeah, oh no, I don't know what you're doing. Oh, we're here, you know. We're talking about animals and, you know, the industry. And have you ever thought about that? And I straight away invite, look, what do you think about this? And I think the key really is to help people look at the phenomena rather than what are you doing personally? Let's first start off by looking at it like as from a level of humanity. So I would ask questions like, how do you think we're in the 2020 now as humanity? Do you think there would be a way that we could change our relationship you know, with the animals? How do we eat? And we go into a kind of pondering mode together. And then, well, have you ever tried changing the way you eat, for example? And then have you heard of the, the health benefits? And we go into things that are like, oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about it from that perspective. You know, it's like it's a healthy space where we're having a dialogue. And at no point is my impetus to try and somehow crush the other person or say what you're doing is wrong. It's just to ask questions. Because I believe that we all have the same core values as human beings, that we are all about compassion, you know, all about liberty, all about peace. And so I feel like the work of the activist really is to ignite those values and then help people find what does that mean concretely in their own lives, in their own actions, in their families and in their communities. That's beautiful. And one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you today about was freedom. What does freedom mean? Because I know it's something you hold very dear to your heart. Freedom. I think that is like the most fundamental birthright for us all. And I would go down to the very principle in, in terms of natural law. If you're thinking about the world through these universal principles, you know, these hermetic laws of consciousness and morality, then freedom would mean that you are in harmony with the principles of natural law, meaning you're not harming anybody else. And as long as you're doing that, you're free to do exactly what you want. You're free to express your life, your gifts, yourself in whichever way, uninhibited. And how do we embody that? How do we embody that? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, we would have to have the integrity and a self-love to look at ourselves, I, I suppose, as a fundamental first step and to see how am I embodying freedom in my life. It's interesting because this scenario, what's happening now with all the governmental control and police and military enforced lockdowns, even in certain places of the world, is kind of inviting us to look at ourselves. Is there a little tyrant in me, you know? For me, for example, that somebody's telling me you can't work, you have to stay locked down. It's like, it puts me into a place of rage inside. It feels so fundamentally wrong. But then it's an, also an invitation to see, well, do I have that tendency in me anywhere where I want to control others, you know? Or I want to tell my partner, you know, how to wash the dishes or whatever. Like, it's also an invitation to see how do we use our free will and how do we respect the free will of others? I think that it's a lot of just self-work. You and I are part of a group on Telegram, which is, a, I guess, a form of social media, and it's called The Free Thinkers. And if we're talking about freedom, 
How does that correlate into being a free thinker and what does that mean for you? And, and do you like to identify yourself as a free thinker? <laughs> yeah, I would say I'm a free thinker. Freedom and free thinking. Hmm. I think what, what comes to mind straight away is Einstein's quote that education is about learning how to think. So a lot of us have been indoctrinated in the school system to learn facts instead of learn how to read reality, how to evaluate circumstances, how to connect the dots. So for me, freedom of thought and freedom are absolutely inherently connected and it would mean that there is no taboo questions. There's no taboo events, but you are free to examine anything because truth will hold water. Truth will hold all the light, but it's the lie that does not stand the light of awareness. So free thinking for me is the willingness and openness to have a dialogue about any subject at all and be willing to look at it from a neutral perspective in a way like, okay, maybe I've been wrong. So I think freedom of thought also means that freedom of being willing to be held accountable for our beliefs and to see, is this belief rooted in reality or is it a fantasy? Is it an illusion? Is it a manipulation? Is it an indoctrination? So I think it's all about openness and willing to be held accountable and being able to have dialogue with people no matter what their stance is. So let's flip that on its head, what the opposite of that would be. In I would probably say that some of our people of authority are not embodying the notion of freedom or free thinking and the way that they talk to the population or the public or their constituents, wherever it may be, is not of that same philosophy. And uh, what, would, what would you call that type of thinking? I don't know if you can call it thinking, because for me, thinking is a creative process. It's like a process of reading reality and making conclusions based on logic and truth. That to me just seems like a form of mind control, because it's all based on censorship, flooding of certain points of the story. It's a narrative. It's a script. That's, that's what I see. It does, it's not holistic in a sense that all people's experiences are allowed or all voices are allowed. There's a definite script which is being perpetuated and certain values that are raised and then others that are shut down. It's like they have monopoly on interpretation of what, for example, morality means. They think morality means for the greater good, doesn't matter how many people suffer, doesn't matter the consequences. You're doing this because it's for the greater good. So they, they have this belief of sacrifice, that we can sacrifice something that isn't our own. Like, for example, the lockdown, we're now sacrificing the livelihoods of you know, millions of people. And it's okay because it's for the greater good to save the lives of these certain people, quote unquote, save their lives. But yeah, it's, it just seems to me that it's a very tyrannical way of thinking. 
It's oppressive. It's based on censorship. Yeah, overruling the free will of others. But so my question is, and this is what, what I find difficult to comprehend, without going down a conspiratorial route, is you're living in Spain at the moment. Yeah. And pretty much what's happening there is happening here in Australia, which is happening in the United States in certain states, which is happening in Canada, which is happening in the UK, which is happening in different parts of the world simultaneously. Yeah. And it seems like the virus of this tyrannical thinking or this tyrannical philosophy has spread in a way that it's bewildering to someone like me. If it happened in your country that you're in at the moment, you'd look at it and go, hmm, Spain's going through some pretty weird shit at the moment. But the fact that it's happening across the globe at the same time and for, as you said, such a small thing that a logical thinker would just go, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How can that be? without going down the conspiracy route, but just on a consciousness level, how can that be? I don't want to use the word frightens, but it doesn't make any sense. It's concerning. It's disturbing, to say the least. Yeah. I would say that it just is, is exposing how we are lacking the shadow work as a collective, you know, because as soon as you give us a trigger, I'm now talking as a human family, you know, you give us a trigger, fear of our own mortality, fear of death, that story, that narrative is just phenomenal in the way that it just contracts our level of consciousness to a place of fight or flight. We go into a non-creative way of, of thinking. Uh, we, don't, we can't take in the broad perspective when we're in that triggered space of fear. And I believe that's just what they did, you know. The story is so compelling for so many people who've never looked at their own fears, you know. That maybe they never even faced death. What could it mean for me to be close to death or losing a loved one? That fear, as we all know, is the biggest fear. And maybe after that is a fear of public speaking. But, you know, like it's up there. So if we haven't made the space in our lives because we're such a performance-oriented society, you know, where we're all about achieving, we're always running for the next thing, we've never stopped to evaluate what's actually meaningful in our lives. What does actually life mean? What does death mean? And so now it's like we're in this dark night of the soul as a collective and people were not prepared. <laughs> so people are just like freaking out, you know? Do you think the appointed leaders are prepared for this? And do you think they're going through their dark night of the soul at the same time? Well, my perspective on calling them leaders it's straight away for me a bit of a dilemma because I see that, you know, the fundamental understanding of natural law means that we are all capable of being the sovereign leaders of our own lives. So for me, the entire system is rigged as a default. So to have certain people so-called representing us is a problem for me straight away because even the idea of democracy means majority overruling minority. So I'm all about conscious communities in harmony, you know, living together and everyone taking the leadership of their own lives. So when I see somebody standing there, you know, at the podium and speaking as a leader, all I see is somebody who's just going against natural law. 
you know, think, believing that they are somehow in a position higher than the rest of us. So I fundamentally, I don't believe in the system that we have. So the people that do believe in that system and have managed to get themselves into that so-called leadership position, for me, they're straight away lacking that true, noble desire to be in service because they are really just in a place of authority, which doesn't belong to them because we should all be the authorities of our own lives. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's interesting you talk about that, the two biggest fears, public speaking and, and facing our own mortality. And I've been blessed that I've managed to overcome the public speaking thing. It was one of my biggest fears. And also through some of my own ceremonial work, passed through my own death, so to speak, or the experience of death for me. So both of those things, I have no fear around those. And that might sound very strange for somebody to hear that, but uh, I'm not sure whether you've gone through your own death, death process or, or shadow oh, yeah. work as well. I definitely have. <laughs> so explain that, how liberating that is. I think you have a beautiful way with words and I would love for you to explain this because I was having a discussion with my, my wife, a conversation with my wife the other night. And she was saying, hey, Pete, you know, you, you talk about your psychedelic or entheogenic journeys and it might be difficult for somebody that's never experienced that to understand what that is and you may be alienating them by talking so openly and freely about it on your podcasts. And we don't need to use psychedelics to go through that process. It's just a tool that seems to work very easily. Well, I won't say easily, but it is a tool that can take you through that process so how liberating is that to experience in your lifetime before the end of your lifetime? Wow. I don't think you can truly understand life if you don't understand death. They go absolutely hand in hand. For me, I see that everyone is presented with that opportunity of looking at death one way or another, that this is the way that life has been coded with such divine intelligence and grace. And if we don't do, for example, ceremonial healing work and uh, vipassanas and, and, and spiritual training and, and healing, life will give us those opportunities. But they can be very painful because when we go into, for example, a retreat with, with sacred plant medicines, we are consciously preparing to meet those fears, you know, and to face the unknown because we go into an unknown territory, of course. But we're supported in that space. You know, there's healers there, facilitators there. We go through a certain diet so that we are psycho-spiritually prepared for this dark night of the soul. Whereas people who don't make the space or time in their lives to go to those places to do their self-healing, they have to go through the kind of a crash course to reality where maybe they lose a loved one or maybe they themselves are in a car accident or they have a terminal illness and they're faced with death unex totally unexpectedly and oftentimes without any kind of support network. The, that chance is there. And, and I have met many people who through personal crisis and trauma of losing a loved one have found their spiritual path. So that opportunity is always there for us. Just, I find it so important that if we can to make the effort to go into those places when the crisis isn't there yet. So we can prepare because all of us are going to go through that at some point in our lives, we're going to lose a loved one. But when we do the inner work already before those painful crises, then we're prepared for those moments. 
you know, on one way or another, you know, maybe not fully, but we have some tools. We've learned how to stay grounded. We've learned how to lean on the beyondness, how we find our spirit guides, you know, we find prayer, we find solace in the unseen world. So when you go through that, in my own personal experience, life becomes so much more liberating because you're no longer running away from death. You're no longer running away from your fears. So every day can be experienced from that place of gratitude and reverence, knowing that it could be your last. None of us know how many days we've been given, you know, or how many days our loved ones have been given. So I, I feel when you go through that realization of what death is and how life doesn't end in death, of course, we continue. We can focus so much on what we can do with the days that we have been given here. Mm, I feel like that, um, and that was a beautiful explanation. Thank you, Hina. I feel like that is part of the reason that we're doing this podcast today and others are doing this. And, and there's certain people out there in the world that are, it's nearly like they're holding people's hands through this journey at the moment. This feels like a shamanic journey. It feels like a spiritual journey. It feels like the spiritual awakening. But in this, for, you know, I'm here in Australia and I'm looking at how people are responding to the lockdowns and, and I have compassion and I have empathy and I feel the pain that people are going through. And it's like, oh, you're going to go through a purge at the moment of some sort. You're going to go through and face your fears, your deepest, darkest fears at the moment. And, and hopefully you can trust and surrender and accept and find the light you know, hold on to that light no matter how dark it gets as you started off this conversation with the Indigenous, you know, that they could keep singing through this, keep grounded through the oppression and the persecution and you name it, what has happened to them over the centuries. And I feel like this is a wonderful opportunity and I don't mean this in a very light-mannered way, but I do feel like this is an invitation for some serious work to be done. And I am concerned for a lot of people that it is going to get a lot worse. And if we don't accept this as an invitation to find your, your centre, to your grounding, to work through your issues, then it's going to get very, very challenging. So how do we navigate this? I mean, you've navigated it yourself, but how do you put a course together, so to speak, or a handbook for uncertainty that people have never faced before? I think we're all learning that now, you know? <laughs> and it's amazing. I feel it's a balance between commitment to doing the right thing and patience to knowing that things take time also on a level of, the collective. Otherwise, it's easy to burn out, especially as an activist, expecting immediate change, expecting immediate awakening from those around us that we're talking to. It's like we can take it too personally and we can feel like we were carrying the entire burden of what's happening on our own shoulders. And it's very easy to burn out very fast and lose all hope. But I think what we can focus on to balance that is the things that nourish us make sure that we have our self-care, you know, in practice, that there is space for creativity in our days. Because in terms of frequency, when you're in a place of inspiration, fear cannot coexist. Say that again for me, please. Yeah, that when you're in a place of inspiration, fear cannot coexist. Inspiration is one of the most highest states of consciousness. 
a human being can experience. And so fear, which is a very low state of consciousness, it cannot, they can't, they're completely different frequencies. So whatever it is that we can find that makes us inspired is our defense, our protection from this grid of fear, which is natural when we are faced with so much uncertainty. So it's a lot about spiritual practice. And this is why the ancients have called it practice, because it doesn't mean that you just reach enlightenment and that's it. You have to practice how to stay in that place every day, where every day is given us new challenges, you know, how to lose our cool, how to be triggered. And every day we're given the chance to learn how to respond with patience and how to respond with faith. Yeah, I think of Rosa Parks, you know, I was thinking that like I'm beginning to now understand what some of these people have gone through when it was systemic oppression and like, of course, it's totally different, but in a way, it's very similar. And I love her quote where she said, they were asking her, the, how come you went and sat in the front of the bus? Because, you know, they were always supposed to sit at the back of the bus. She said, because I was tired. I was tired. And it's just so simple, you know, tired of the, the farce, tired of the oppression. I'm a human being. I'm just going to sit at the front of the bus. And she did it. And what did she do? She sparked an entire movement. And I feel like we need to listen to that as well. Are we tired of this oppression? Are we just going to say, you know what? No, I'm not. I'm not this pathetic, oppressed being. I'm a noble, incredible, divine being in, in, in flesh. You know, like, I'm, no, I'm tired of that. I'm just going to take my mask off. I have a medical exemption, so I'm walking around without a mask, probably one in thousand here, but I'm thinking of Rosa Parks when I'm doing that, you know? Somebody's got to do that. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed the first half of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please visit evolvenetwork.tv. That's evolvenetwork.tv. We'll see you there. The information views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.